If you would, turn with me to 2 Samuel 21. We're going to be looking at those 22 verses today, and I will read sections of it as we go along. And um, if you would just bow with me, and then we will begin. Father, I thank you for your word, for the clarity with which you present things to us. With We thank you for all the different genres of your word, where we can read stories, and we can read um, just letters and we can read apocalyptic literature all different types of literature in your word we thank you for how they function to help us grow and understand uh, the things that you want us to see and understand we pray that you would give us wisdom today by your spirit to grasp the wonderful things from your scriptures in christ's name amen have you ever uh purchase something from someone where maybe they restored it or maybe they built it themselves and you uh, kind of you got there thinking you were getting one thing and you ended up getting something totally different maybe Uh, I know that you know in certain parts especially in older communities sometimes there will be houses that started out when a family was really small like a thousand square you know, feet, and then you say, well, the family's grown a little bit, let's add 200 square feet, and then let's add 200 more. Well, then, you know, when you go into that house, you think, man, they didn't start out with this in mind, it just ended up that way. And um, it's kind of like that. Sometimes you are, I guess you could say, in following someone like that, sometimes you're like, man, this is, this is tough. Because they kind of put this together, but there wasn't really a master plan. Uh, You think about that in a community. Uh, Anna went to school at Western Carolina University, and she wasn't very far from Asheville. Well, if you've been out there recently, you realize Asheville is growing. The problem is, is you drive down through downtown Asheville, and there are these tiny roads. And so you could go, it might, there's not that many people that live there, but you might drive two miles in a 30-minute time period and you're thinking good night they had no idea when they built this small mountain kind of town that it would grow into something uh, great and and, and at some level and so I think it's just tough sometimes when we're handed kind of problems from someone else Uh, maybe it's their the decisions they made maybe they weren't thinking several steps ahead whatever it might be and they kind of have just just added things on as they went along and then you're kind of left with uh, some difficult things and so within uh, if you're in leadership at any level uh, bad decisions inside a church family or organization oftentimes uh, cause you to kind of have to go through a, a rebuild kind of have to tear down and rebuild something and one of the things with David is is that David when he became the leader of Israel he received from Saul things that he may not even have known that he had received. And so when he addresses all those things, you see it on display. You think like, man, Saul's lack of character uh, and undisciplined life affected a lot of people negatively, and it affects the kingdom. And then David is kind of faced with having to uh, pick the pieces up and address those things. So this chapter deals with the external difficulties and the internal difficulties that David faces as a result of Saul. Now, this chapter begins, really, the conclusion 
of First and Second Samuel. Uh, you could read First and Second Samuel uh, together, and th- these twenty-one through twenty-four kind of concludes it, and you'll see that as we work through it together. And so, chapter twenty-one is kind of a conclusion here. And for me, it's like we know that First and Second Samuel chronicled the life of Samuel, the king maker. The life of Saul, Israel's first king, the king after their own heart, and the life of David, God's king, a man after his own heart. And that would kind of be something, a way for us to think about that. For me today, as I'm thinking about it, and I'm thinking about these external and uh, internal struggles, I'm just trying to say, how do I really understand the kingdom? What should it be like? And... um, what are the results of like not, not living up to the ways in which God would intend for you to live? And uh, we're specifically looking at leaders, but leaders that impact all these other people. And so there's, there's kind of, you're going to say, man, I don't know how I would put all that together. I struggled with that this week too. Like, how do you put this together? Hopefully it'll be clear for you as you move through and understand that. So we're going to say there's troubles in and there's troubles outside. And on the inside, that's where we're going to start. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. And I want you to think about the term just clarity. That's what verses 1 and 2 brings you to. God is a merciful God that gives us clarity about situations oftentimes. And so a lot of times people that are ill-informed about the Scriptures, you may not understand that, hey, God's already talked about that. Sometimes people are praying God I want to know your will God help me understand what you want for me God this and God that and yet the reality is sometimes you're like but hasn't he revealed that in his word I mean is that not clear and so um, that's one of these things here is where David is actually not sure of something and God is going to open his eyes to see now it starts out in verse one there's a famine a three-year famine David seeks the Lord he's wondering why is this why do I feel like I'm experiencing the covenant curses? Why do I feel like I'm in such a difficult place? Why is he dealing with us uh, in this way? So he cries out to the Lord. And I, you know, sometimes I struggle with this because I think about the history of the children of Israel in, in, when they were in Egypt and they're crying out to the Lord. Is there this specific moment, this one-time event, or is this over a number of times he's asked the Lord and then he keeps on asking and seeking and knocking and then the Lord says, okay, I'm going to reveal this to you. Well, what he reveals is that Saul, uh, he says there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he killed this group of people, the Gibeonites. And as a result, Israel has come under great trouble. Now you might say, just again, since we're doing a summary a summary is not necessarily chronological, so we're not saying, oh, First and Second Samuel, when you get to Second Samuel 21, you know that you are uh, chronologically at the end of David's life. That's not what we need to say. We're saying we are given a, a, a picture of one of the moments in David's reign kind of here. And so he goes to the Lord, he asks the Lord, the Lord tells him this is um, what has taken place, and uh, as a result... You know, you need to address this. Now, who are the Gibeonites, just so you understand? They are a people that um, early on in Israel's history kind of made a deal with the leaders and said, 
you need to make a promise to us that you will never do anything horrible to us. That you will preserve our lives within the midst of Israel. We will perpetually be in good graces with you. You need to make an oath. It's kind of like you need to make a covenant with us. Now, Saul's zeal, we'll see here, for the house of God is not, I mean, or for Israel, you might say, and for Judah, is, is not, it's not wrong for him to be zealous, but understand this, and this is just something, when I've worked with younger guys and we're talking about things, a lot of times we'll go to Titus chapter 2 and it says, older men are be temperate, dignified, sound in speech and love and in perseverance. And what I'm saying is, listen, be zealous, pursue things, but understand it needs to be bridled. You, you need, I mean, there's a, a level of like, you're wanting for that all that desire to do something or whatever to be bridled and directed in the right ways. Saul, if you look at his life, you think like, man, it was just unbridled passion. He never really was directed in a certain way. He just went off of what he felt in the moment, what I want to do in the moment. That was kind of his way of living. Now, so when we get to this, you're looking at it. These people, uh, they had been treated wrongly by Saul. They had lost lives as a result of Saul. Now, I think it's important just to say, what is at stake here? I, I think it's just always important. When you like run off into doing whatever you want to do with your desires, what's at stake? Well, for the king, the whole kingdom. For you, it might be your whole family. And not only that, what's at stake here is when you say, I am a Christian, you are aligning yourself with Christ so that what you do and what you say and how you live, that's aligned with Him. And so on this passage, when you're looking at it, when Saul is making bad decisions as God's uh, representative of His people, it goes out to All of the people there. And so the name of Yahweh, you could say, is brought down. He's taking God's name in vain. He is acting on behalf of God, leading the people, killing people that should not be killed, and it is wrong in the sight of God. God's reputation is at stake. His word, the way He speaks, is He honorable? Is He true to what He says? All that stuff is at stake with Saul here. We kind of do this with uh, our oldest. We'll say, your name is William Bruce. That should immediately tell you that you are named after your two grandfathers. And they have spent a lot of time living a life to the glory of God and the good of others. Their name means something. When they say something, they mean it. And we expect you to live up to your name. Some people don't like that. But we are calling him to that because what we're saying is your name represents people that have gone before you. And we want you to live in such a way that they are honored. And God's name is not to be taken lightly in a much greater way than that. So, God in His mercy helps them, uh, David understand what has taken place. Look at verses 3-9. through And so David immediately, now he's cleaning up a mess. Remember I said, sometimes you get into a situation and the more you kind of tear it back and pull it apart, you think, 
Ah, what were they thinking? And you keep pulling back and you think, who built this, you know? Well, Saul's done some things that now David is kind of faced with and he has to clean up the mess of Saul. And so David says to these people, the Gibeonites, who had lost many people at the hand of Saul, he says, what shall I do for you and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? That's a big word. The word atonement, that's a huge word. What, what does it mean? It's, it's like, how can I satisfy you, your wrath in a sense, like your desire to come after Israel, to throw them off, to your, your desire for justice, for the wrongs committed. How can I satisfy that with you? How can I appease your your wrath against us for the wrongs that we have committed. That's the picture. And so David may have thought they would say, hey, David, bring me a big bag of silver and gold. I want it in one ounce little coins, you know, and we'll pass them out to all the families. But that's not what happens. What they say is, listen, silver and gold will not address this issue. And then we have to stop and say, what's up with a commitment like this? Why will that not be enough? What you know about the ancient world is when they would make a covenant together, they would take an animal and cut it in two. They would lay the pieces out. The two parties would agree. If it was one of you here, we would say, this is what I'm committing to. This is what you're committing to. Before witnesses, we're committed to doing this as we walk hand in hand through these pieces what we are saying is if I fail to live up to my commitment may God do to me what has been done to these animals and so the guys uh, the, the these Gibeonites say we need seven men from the house of Saul and they're going to hang those seven men and what they're doing is those seven men will represent the house of Saul in Israel for the sins that have been committed. The covenant has been broken. The covenant curses have fallen down upon them. They've said, may God do so to me if I fail to live up to this. And therefore, they are getting what they deserved. Now, for some of us, if we're honest, like you're looking at this thinking, good night, this is shocking. Is this really how it works? Is that, is that really something? Is that how it works? I mean, can you think of the horror of the situation? Uh, this covenant breaker now is, is like what he has done has brought on this kind of trouble. It is a shocking thing. Do you think of atonement? Like, for instance, if I were to go into your house and you had a beautiful little cross in your house or maybe around your neck you have a cross or maybe wherever you have a cross and you have it on your shirt and all this kind of stuff does that make you think of atonement and really does it seem messy is it bloody I mean that's kind of, that's the picture here when you're thinking about that when we think of Christ as our representative he stands in the place of us and He atones for our sins. 
How does he do that? He is crucified. That's how he does it. That's how he atones for our sins. What we deserve is death, and he took death for us. And God was satisfied with what he did, and he proved that by raising him from the dead. And so I think it's just important for us to see that, to understand that. Now, one author wrote this. From slicing the bull's throat in Leviticus 1, going back to like what was done in that time, all the way to Calvary, God has always said atonement is nasty and repulsive. Christians must beware of becoming too refined, longing for a kinder, gentler faith. If we've grown too used to Golgotha, perhaps Gibeah can shock us back into the truth. Atonement is a drippy, bloody, smelly business. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. So you remember, not only do these men cry out for blood, God has put Israel under this curse, under this time of, uh, of um, famine, to wake them up so that like things were made right for what they had done. And that's a huge deal. So we have troubles within, and God in His grace clarifies what the trouble is. David is going to make atonement, and it's going to cost men's lives. Third, verse 7. There is a man named Mephibosheth. You see him? Uh, there's actually two mentioned in this passage, but this is the son of Jonathan. And this is just a reminder that God provides safety. And David is an example of a covenant-keeping man. He made a covenant with Jonathan, and he is protecting this man. This young man who he had promised to protect, he is now protecting. David does not break his promises. He is... It's like you set him up. You have Saul, the covenant breaker, and David, the covenant keeper. And you see that on display. So, what do we think here about this? How do you put this together? I just think, again, the issue is we have this clarity. We see atonement made. We see God like protecting this man through David from dying. Him upholding his promise to us. And then, one other thing is to kind of stick out to you is that Christ, the greater David, is going to do with his people. He's going to protect them. And you see that over and over and over again. Now, the last little portion. Again, 2 Samuel has some really, I mean, just shocking things going on in there. The last section in verses 10 through 14 and the first half kind of of this chapter is, is you see like a mother's love. I mean, in a real shocking way. In the midst of, Men being hung in the midst of this horrible situation, in the midst of like a, a moment where you're like, I don't even want to include that in the story. I, I don't want to talk about that kind of thing. I don't really want to have to face the idea of atonement and all that. I mean, that's hard for us. In the midst of that, you have this picture to kind of further illustrate how heartbreaking the situation is. Look at verses 10 through 14. There is this woman, Rizpah. And she, um, in the, in, like after these seven men are killed, it says, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of fields by night. 
So in her time of mourning, she goes and sits among those, those people who have been hung, and there's a, they're there, piled up in a way, and you're saying, she is sitting there, and by day she's protecting them from their bodies, uh, from the birds, and by night, the beast. And so she is under like a 24-hour vigil watching over these corpses. That's the picture. I mean, it's a, it, like I said, there's something gruesome about this. Some of you might say, you know what? I don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. Just not, that's not the way I think of it. I don't even, I don't want to talk about death. I don't want to talk about any of that. I don't want to talk about covenant breaking. I would just say to you, listen, the Bible does show the horror of sin. I mean, it does. It does not back away from that. Sin is horrible. Sin demands punishment. Blood has to be spilled. I mean, sometimes like when, here's what happens. There are some people that think, well, my sin's not that great. Christ's sacrifice is not that great. I don't really, I'm not too, I mean, it's not that big a deal to me. Keep me a clean cross with no bloody Jesus. But that's not the reality here. We are seeing Saul's sin causes great trouble upon his family and upon the house of Israel. And the only way this covenant breaking could be atoned for is through the spilling of blood. And it is nasty and it is gross and it is frightening to think about what all is taking place. As a result of these things, David hears about what has happened. His heart probably softens. He, he, he is aware of what has taken place. And he, as a result, he goes and gives not only Saul and Jonathan, but also these seven a proper burial. Okay, so we say this is the trouble within. There's sin inside the camp. There, there's sin going on here, and this sin requires some extreme measures to atone for the sins of the people. And then we move outside the camp and we say, oh my goodness, look what's happening outside there. There, there are, there's battles on every side, so there's battles within and battles on the outside. But ultimately, we're going to see the king preserved. Verses 15 through 17. There's a war with the Philistines. It's always that. The, the Israel is always struggling with that. You remember uh, early on in David's life, he struggled with the Philistine Goliath. And now there's more giants among these, this group, right? And they are coming against David and seeking to destroy him. They know that they must come after him. There's one moment, one battle, just a glimpse into that, where he grows weary and one of his men, uh, they come to his aid and they defeat this great giant. The size of the men, it's shocking. That they, it, it talks about here, y'all, you may see this, I don't know, look in the text, I'm trying to find it real quick. In verse 16, one man, his spear weighed 300 shekels. So it's like seven pounds that he's able to take and like throw in battle. You're thinking, what? How big was this guy? How strong was he? And you, you kind of are, remember, y'all remember when they first went into the promised land and as they stepped into there, those spies went in 
And they said, like, everything God has said is true. But we're like grasshoppers compared to the people there. I mean, they're huge and powerful and frightening. And yet, what we see is in the midst of that, although Israel in stature might be considered small, the Lord is with them and the Lord is preserving His King. You'll see the people, the men are so, they have such a regard for Him that they say, listen, you need to make an oath with us that you'll never go into battle again lest, the, 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 lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now, here's the thing. What do we see about David there? You see David as a king who is light. You know, Saul, we're saying like he's caused all this trouble that David's having to clean up, but David is a light to the people. What does that mean? He guides them. He directs them. He's blessing them. He's showing them the right way to go and move. And he, he's, he's, he is a blessing to them. They would think we would be uh, in the dark if you were not around. Again, for us, when we look at this, we understand that. One greater than David would come, and he, said, he spoke of being the true light. I am the light of the world, he said. And, and, and his light came into the darkness, and not everyone wanted to receive that, but to those who who did he was a guide to them light to them he blessed them and so it's just important to i think grasp that to say okay there's troubles inside there's troubles on the outside but the king is preserved now also verses 18 to 22 the king's men are victorious and honored and this is interesting you'll notice in verses 18 through 22 there are three other giants that they fight. And his men are victorious in it. And they're celebrated for it. You know, sometimes, uh, I don't know, people like to rally around one person or one person likes everybody to rally around them. But here you see this demonstration of David's men, the mighty men, fighting these battles and they're celebrating their victories. And so all of this is taking place and you're saying David's kingdom would be, would be known uh, by victory they were fighting towards victory and they would see it uh, different than Saul who sat back when Goliath was chanting and saying all those things Saul's kind of sitting there in fear David always steps out his men step out and they go against those who stand against the people of God now the question then is like is it still that way was it that way in the New Testament is God being honored today by his faithful men is Christ uh, uh, does Christ have these people that are living for His kingdom and for His glory and, and, and should they be honored? You see in the New Testament this. Just kind of listen to uh, one writer, I think it was Davis, that said, think of the little catalogs of greetings and commendations that pepper the last chapters of Paul's epistles. One thinks of Paul's references to uh, Priscilla and Aquila who once risked their necks for his life. Who knows what the particulars were, but it's on the same level with facing Goliath's brother. Jesus himself honors his erratic disciples with appreciation, uh, and, and many of his servants throughout history, this has been the case. It is one of the things in my life, if I were to look back over it, I could tell you about men when I was little and men today that I say, it does not matter what might come, they will stand. 
That's just what they do. They're courageous men. They're bold men. They are men that fight the fight of faith. They are men who are steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the works of the Lord. And their labor is not in vain. And I can look up to them. I can look back into my past. I know I can look in the present. And I can say, these men will stand. And it is a glorious thing to see. So when we think about the kingdom... We can look at this and say, you know what? Saul was a covenant breaker. David was, a, in this picture, a covenant keeper. Saul's life was something that was lived in the dark. And, and, and his sins were hidden for a moment. But then they come out into the light. David's uh, ministry among the people of God would be characterized by light. Saul's enemies were like chanting, you know, like going and saying, who would stand? Who will stand against me? And you remember Goliath, and they're all kind of shaking in their boots. And David's ministry is to the people of God in fighting, you can see his enemies are silenced. If you're a Christian, you know there are battles within and battles without, and that in the midst of that, you have this amazing hope. You have one greater than David, right? And he has fought and won the victories for you. He is faithful and true. And in response to that, fighting from victory, we are to put on the armor. Ephesians 6, verses 14 to 20 say this, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the, bre- uh, the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put, in, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Are you living like that? Are you living in that victory and with that kind of hope? Are you trusting in a Messiah, a King, who will save you, truly save you? One who is the light of life, the one that is the light of the world, the one who has defeated the darkness. I hope today, if you are outside of Christ, that you would turn to Him and trust Him as your only hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the example of Saul and David for how you set them up to help us see that there was a man, Saul, who trusted in his own efforts, in his own life. He hoped in himself. He lived for himself. He served himself. And he got what he, ultimately, what he deserved in that. And yet David, in your mercy, he trusts you, follows you, walks with you, He is an example for us, and we ask that we would even see beyond David today and see the glorious message of the gospel that Christ saved us and rescued us and gave us victory and that we can move forward by faith now today with courage and hope and and with total assurance in what He has done for us. In Christ's name, amen.